Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm completely surrounded by my stuff and boxes, loads of boxes, endless packaging as there have been loads of deliveries. My neighbours think I'm running a crack den and that I'm Charlie's answer to Nathan Bodie Barksdale. And in some ways they're right. I have an addiction to RPGs, old ones. New ones, some as big as your head, they're all here, ready to be explored and to enter the great library of RPGs on my right. Here on my left, well, normally you'd find the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe, the eternal champion who appears in many guises to stimulate my muse. This time I have a jigsaw, which was a gift from Doc Cowie, who you'll remember from the Aftermath episode. It depicts the Eternal Champion, apparently as fan favourite Vampyra. But on closer inspection, her head is a couple of sizes too small. It's an imposter, a simulacrum, or a ridiculous homemade Photoshop. Ah well, it's the thought that counts. Thanks, Doc. This episode features the second part of the interview with Dave Morris. This time he faces the Games Master screen and a table that I roll on, apparently at random, reveals the rock and roll years of White Dwarf and how he pushed the limits of game book technology and his other gaming and writing projects. You really should listen to this one as a companion to the review of 2019 as it features Dave's longtime collaborator, Jamie Thompson. If you're here for the interview, it's about 40 minutes in. The rest of it is a couple of chances talking bobbins about the games we've played in 2020. It's the annual Groggy Awards, where we reward gaming experiences of the year with coveted titles such as the Messianic Megalomaniac Award for the GM Experience of the Year, the Olive Kinsberg Players Playing and Playing in the Games that We Play Award, the New Kid on the Top, the Tabletop, the Captain Bird's Eye Fish Finger Award for the Things We'd Like to Stop, and many, many more. It goes on and on and on and on. It's a long one. Don't operate heavy machinery and make sure you have a supply of hobnobs ready to push you through to the end when I'll be back to say goodbye. You know, when we started the Groggies in 2016, I was concerned that we were being referred to as Metropolitan Elites. However, on reflection, listening to the beginning of this discussion, I think the transformation is complete. I'll let you decide. Ramblers, let's get rambling. Groggies part one. Welcome. The red carpet has been rolled and we're going to embark on the annual Groggy Awards where we give out our, well, we don't give anything out, really. It's kind of a, like everything else in 2020, it's a virtual thing. It doesn't really exist. It's merely fabricated, spun up by us two chancers here in the heart of the Northwest. Hello there, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Are you ready to pass judgment on these awards? Of course. 
Uh, I'm stood here between two statues of our award. You know, it's a, it's a man with three faces. For are we not cursed like Janus to look forwards and backwards? And this is our opportunity to do it again, isn't it, over the year? Did you like that classical illusion? I did. I like classical illusion there, yeah. Well done. Yeah, yeah. can become prime minister on the strength. Slightly ruined by the fact that Janus had two faces and the award has three, but never yeah. mind. Okay, and I've got, have you got a cup of tea? Because I think we're going to be here for a while. I've got me a cup of, well, it's not, it's sadly, it's not fresh orange. It's clementine juice. Substitute difference? There's like a world difference in that. It doesn't taste like orange. Okay, anybody says it doesn't taste like orange. It's a bit bit too sweet. It was a substitution on the shopping list. You know, the substitutions. Oh, substitutions. Substitute, accept substitutions. Well, I'll accept substitutions if you tell me what you're going to substitute it with. That's the problem, isn't it? They want you to accept the substitution, but they don't tell you there'll be clementine juice. Well, I've got um, I've got a cup of tea and I've made it in a teapot. And because at this time of the year, I always have this idea that I'm going to make tea with proper tea leaves in a teapot mm. and enjoy the mindfulness. Yeah, of, how long does that? How long does that last? Every few weeks, I'm back on the bags within days. <laughs> well done for it lasting a few weeks. Things like that for me last a few days. To, to warm you up, I've got a bit of a game for you. I've taken this from Word In Your Ear podcast, which is a music-based podcast with two old farts, remembering stuff from the past. That it kind of thing. terrible. Yeah, yeah that, terrible. that format. Is, involved in that. Yeah. But they start uh, each programme with the, what they call the Stack Waddy game. And it's this idea that uh, band names, uh, one of them's made up, and uh, you've got to try and guess what they are. And uh, I'm going to call this the prefab sprite game because I remember back in the 80s when I said there's a band called prefab sprite. You would re- you refuse to believe me? <laughs> I still do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, okay. you, you wouldn't accept it, would you? No. And it seems think, ridiculous. it's a ridiculous name for a band, anyway, isn't it? Yeah. I think ever. Fair, but, yeah. I think ever since, whenever you've had any doubt in the veracity of anything I've been saying, I've always said, "Oh, is this another prefab sprite moment?" You know. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, and that, let's face it, that happens a lot. Might me doubting the veracity of what you're saying. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> does with with good with reason. Good, with good reason. Yeah. <laughs> you can play this at home. So, uh, so the way that this works, that there's five um, things here, five titles. One of them's made up, and the idea is you've got to guess which one it is. Okay, so Blythe, here we go. Here, ready? All right. I've got here go. the titles of '80s fanzines. '80s fanzines, okay. Okay. RPG yep. fanzines. Mm-hmm. You've got to spot the ringer from these. Are you ready? Okay. You got a pen and paper there. Um. Well, uh, go on. I'll I'll write them down. Yeah. You want me to participate, don't you? Yeah. Let's do this properly. Go on. All right. Carry on. Okay. First one. Balrog banter. Balrog banter. Number two. Brian's floating disc. Brian's floating disc. Number three. Doom book of chaos. Doom book of chaos. Yeah. Four. Chaos Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And five, LSD. <laughs> LSD. <laughs> yeah. 
So four of them are bona fide titles of fanzines from the 80s. One of them I've made up. So talk me through it. Balrog Battle. My my logic, well, I'm instinctively drawn to suspect Balrog Banter. And why is that? Because although the word banter existed in the 80s, banter is one of those words that became quite prevalent in the noughties. You know, people talked about banter. People talk about banter now, don't they? They they didn't in the 80s. Did you ever hear the word banter in the 80s? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm instinctively drawn to that. LSD has got got to be a real one because it's so so stupid. Does no bearing, no no apparent bearing on role playing. Although it may stand, I assume it stands for something else, not LSD. But who knows? But that that seems obvious. That just seems obvious, LSD, that that is an eighties fanzine. I think Chaos Lord might be an eighties fanzine because I think I've heard of Chaos Lord. Uh, so that leaves Balrog Banter, Brian's floating disc, and Doom Book of Chaos. Doom Book. Doom, Doom Book of Chaos seems a bit suspect as well, doesn't it? A bit over the Doom Book of Chaos. Mm. I'm gonna I'm gonna say the fake one is Balrog Banter. I've got you. Balrog Banter did exist. Oh go on. And, um, and and Doom Book of Chaos. That was actually I found out uh, recently that was actually produced in Bolton. It was quite a, a well known one. And uh, mm. yeah, Charlie New Road, the editors lived on Charlie New Road. Not, not that well known. I never heard of it. No. Uh, <laughs> Mind you, I never heard of Prefab Spout, so what do yeah. I know? <laughs> yeah, and that's how this works, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah. The ringer, the ringer in there is Brian's floating disc. That's the one uh, I've made up. Right. There you go. Well, that sounds convincing, though, doesn't it? You know, Brian's yeah. floating disc. Yeah. I might, in fact, I might start a fanzine. Called Brian's floating, floating disc. disc. Yeah. <laughs> now, before I do this, I always uh, start with the stats. And, of course, this year has been, for a lot of people, uh, quite phenomenal, the amount of gaming that they've got because people have been at yeah. home and uh, the explosion of online play. I mean, I did a, I know you do a list, but I did, I did a list of all the games that I'd played or run this year. And it, honestly, it goes on and on and on. I quite astonished myself how much I've played. I mean, again, you know, can't avoid this topic, can we? But lock, I suppose lockdown has meant that all the things you might have done that might have stopped your gaming, like living like a normal human being, going out to the pub or doing stuff with your family, has all stopped for long periods of time and that that's created this vacuum that gaming has filled and that that's why it's been like that it's certainly a byproduct of the current unpleasant situation and um it feels like you're trivializing it doesn't it to kind of uh point it out and the amount of <laughs> think yeah. you know we're in the midst of a global pandemic which has had disastrous consequences on public health and people's uh, lives and uh, mental health and um the economies around the world um so you know like you say to come out of it to say oh but we've managed to play lots of games it seems yeah, rather... it seems a bit glib doesn't it so, <laughs> but on the plus side <laughs> i've managed to play markborg ray so by my calculation we've done 326 hours of gaming Blimey. with 35 different systems 35 different mm. systems 
but I bet there's a few more. And I think I think as well, the other thing, I think I've bought more games than I've ever bought before. Yeah. We are from coming from a position position of privilege aren't we because we've been fortunate enough to uh, work through this but mm. you end up in the same place all day working in the same place playing in the same place and every day has a tendency to feel like the next the retail therapy is just getting that moment of pleasure when something drops through your door yeah you nice. open it up and you feel that kind of warm glow for a few minutes and yeah. then it dissipates <laughs> yeah and it's i mean I, I, it's kind of ironic isn't it because i think my new year's resolution in january of 2020 was to say i'm not going to buy any new games and lo and behold i bought more games than ever before yeah um but i have to say my new year's resolution for 2021 it's not buy any more games yeah because i do it. think it's a it's a strange one isn't it I, I and mean, we'll come on to talk about some of these these games that we've purchased but in some ways, it's been a good thing because I think I've discovered a couple of notable ones, discovered new games because I bought games that maybe in the past I've toyed with buying and not bothered with not bothered to buy. And I have bought this year and they've been a really good experience and really good games. But scattered in with that are lots of games I've bought and not played and thought, you know what, I don't think I'll ever play that. What we always done previously is factor in when you buying it when are you going to play it so yeah you, as soon as it lands yeah. on your doormat the, the old the the pre-2020 way of working is that you schedule in the session wouldn't you to to play it to make sure that you yeah. got the value out of it but you're yeah. right i don't think um that convention has gone out the window hasn't it this yeah and i think the other thing of real again i've kind of always known this but i think it's become more acute over this year is that that thing of you buy a game and you can buy a game and play a game, but what you realise is you need to play some of these games more than just once or twice to really get into them. And if you buy lots and lots of games, you then tend to think, oh, I'm going to play this once or twice and that's it and move on. And that, that's a bad thing because we've played one or two games where we thought that was okay, but I think I need to play this three or four times before I really get into it properly and understand how it works and understand what it's about and that's not necessarily a case of just understanding the rules because the rules are complicated or anything like that it's just understanding the way those rules fit together or the way the setting fits together or what you're supposed to do as a player or a games master those those things you can't really appreciate those with a lot of games after one or two sessions yeah. and of course if you buy lots of games that that becomes a problem it's like those uh, people who uh, unfairly judged Taylor Swift's new album on the basis of one listen. Absolutely, yeah. You know, whereas I like to unfairly judge it after five or six listens. We'll move on. One of the things that <laughs> um, one of the things I've noticed from looking at this stats is, uh, and this is one of the things that surprised me, is fifty-five hours of Savage Worlds we've mm. played. That's yeah. over two days. Two solid days of playing Savage yeah, Worlds. A lot of Savage Worlds. In different flavours. Why mm. do you think that that has happened? Why Why do you think Savage Worlds has become the go-to system of 2020? I think it goes back to what I just said. That group on a Wednesday, we all know Savage Worlds. We all know it, don't we? So that, that counts for something because you can drop into that system and go, okay, it's a different setting, but we all know it. When you understand the game, inside out and know it very well 
and know it off the top of your head, the, the experience of playing it becomes much more enjoyable because the system sinks into the background almost because everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Everyone knows what a raise is. Everyone knows what a wound is, shaken, some of the modifier. We all understand that now. Earlier in the year, we played a face-to-face game. Remember face-to-face playing? And I run a game of uh, Savage Worlds, Day After Ragnarok, and it's one of my favourite sessions I've uh, run this year. And what I was very conscious of playing Savage Worlds for the first time ever face-to-face was that there's lots of bits to it. You know, there's a Mm. lot of stuff like cards and just keeping track of stuff when you paint it face to face a lot so it's not immediately apparent why it works so well online you know something that has all this paraphernalia to support it well i, I don't know if it, if it necessarily is good to play online i, I think is it because we just all know it I, and i think when we started playing savage worlds years years before we weren't that keen on it we did think it was a bit fiddly and a bit bitty but of course mm. we just pers- well as persevered is the wrong word but people um we just played more and more of it and eventually it sinks into your head like any game system does. But I do I do think, though, online, Savage Worlds works quite well because um, the character sheet on Roll20 is very good in that it does a lot of things for you. So all those things, tracking shaken and tracking wounds and all those things that are bitty around a table are done on the character sheet. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, give out some awards. So the first award is um, for the... Messianic Megalomaniac, the Messianic Megalomaniac. This is the Games Master Award. This is the award for good uh, Games Mastering or good Games Mastering experiences that uh, either of us have uh, encountered, whether that's ourselves um, or others uh, as we've been playing. So uh, let's start with you, Blythe. What have you nominated for the uh, Messianic Megalomaniac Award? It's quite a difficult award this year because I feel... (laughs) If I'm honest, it's like me and you have run loads of games. So loads of games I've played, you've been running. And games yeah. games you've played, I've been running. <laughs> so we're both a couple of megalomaniacs. Yeah, who knew? <laughs> who knew, yeah. I think you're more of a megalomaniac than me. I think you are. If there are degrees of megalomania, which there possibly are, I don't know. Like to the, like I think there are. I think you're worse. So what? So, so yeah. if, there's a, if, if there's a megalomania continuum, you're saying that somewhere on it, I'm on the edge. I, I think with yeah. megalomania, you've got to go big or go home. Yeah, you don't get, you don't get kind of moderate megalomaniac. <laughs> I'm a megalomaniac, but I'm one of the moderates. So who would I, who would I nominate? I'm, I'm tempted to nominate you. This is, this is awful, but I really enjoyed your Leoness game. I did enjoy your Leoness game. And it felt like a setting where I felt very comfortable with mm. what it offered, what it could do and I very easily slipped into it and was able to create the world. And I think yeah. that always helps because uh, by the same token, I've been uh, running uh, Eberron um, and uh, a campaign in Eberron. And that is a setting that when I looked at him last year, I thought, this is great. You know, there's lots to this um, setting. However, I found it really difficult to bring the elements alive um, that Eberron's got. And I think part of the reason for that is that everything that's in D&D is in Eberron. It ends up going through like a bit of an equaliser. So it doesn't feel like a, a unique world, which is what it felt like when I read it. 
Um, and but the experience of playing in Eberron is very different from the experience of reading it. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, but doesn't doesn't that well, again go back to go back to what I was saying earlier, where Leoness for you and for me to some extent, but but you in particular was a a setting that you know from the novels. And I think, as you said, um, during the game, I've been waiting all my life to run a game in Leoness, and now I can because there's been a role-playing game invented for it. So you kind of know the setting. And also a lot of the players knew the setting as well. So I am a fan of the setting, uh, and other players were fans of the setting. And that all contributed, I think, to making that game really, really good. Um, Whereas something like Eberron, it might be a great setting, but I, I don't know much about it. And so, again, it's that, that leading time, isn't it, of thinking how immersed you have to be in this setting to really get the value out of it? And yeah. how much time have you got in your gaming life to do that? That's the problem. Was Leoness almost hit the ground running? The other thing with that game, halfway through the year, I got a bit frustrated with the one-shot format. So one-shots online, usually mm. two hours, aren't they? Two hours, quite intense, perhaps two and a half hours, quite intense gameplay. What that means is that you're into an incident and uh, coming out of it, and if you're lucky, you can get another incident. I, as a games master and as a player as well, began to recognise the biorhythms of an online game. You knew the beats of it. And so I experimented with three-session format so that it allowed a bit more space to... Uh, so still a one-shot, in essence. You've really got three acts to it. I tried it with Hawkmoon, and that wasn't quite as successful because it, all the action took place in one place. And really, that's a one-shot format, isn't it? And having that uh, three-act structure allows you to have a journey you know, uh, to to move through uh, a yeah. scene. So yeah. um, I think uh, this year I'm going to do that a lot more to set up games with three acts, three sessions. It, it did sort of contribute to it, that, because it gives you a bit more flexibility. And, and I, I kind of copied the same thing when I ran Alien. It's, it's almost like a big one-shot, but broken up into episodes. It's been more enjoyable to run, isn't it, as well? Because with a one-shot, there's always that, pressure on you as a games master to think you're looking at the clones constantly looking at the clock thinking right where are they now right i've got to move it on a bit got to move it on a bit maybe i need to drop that scene or make that scene a bit shorter whereas when you do three or four sessions that first first couple of sessions you've got a bit more time to play around with it let the players play around with it and then when you get to the end where you've got to conclude it that conclusion is is kind of informed by what the players did earlier on in earlier sessions so we don't we don't we're not going to call them one shots. We call them try shots. Try try shots, yeah. Who are you nominating? Because the person nomin- you nominate is going to win because they're not going to give it to you. Anyway, well, um, in true megalomaniac uh, fashion, I'm going to nominate uh, one of the games that I've run. <laughs> You're a monster, aren't you? You're going <laughs> to nominate yourself. Yeah. Well, listeners, this is what you deal. It's what I have to deal with. I can nominate you. You could nominate me. You could nominate me, couldn't you? But anyway, um, <laughs> go on, go on, nominate yourself. Go on, I'll do I'm it. I nominate myself for the aftermath game only because it pushed me out of my uh, games mastering comfort zone. I, it, it was the one that was set in the world of threads in the uh, bunker below uh, Sheffield Town Hall, and it would have been very easy, I think. And I was tempted to 
as Kiha describes it, to nerdtrop, to try and go for the safety option, which is to make it more adventurous. I, I think it was a response to working in the public service in the time of pandemic, appreciating that all the time people are making choices between the service and duty to um, the community and their own personal and individual responsibility to those that are close around them and I wanted to try and explore that within this game I've run it twice and really enjoyed it but it's not been a games mastering experience that I've ever had before. It was one of those games where there was a situation which you dropped players into and the players there was a sort of duty on the players to play the characters in that situation and the, the adventure grew from that, from the ground up, so to, so to speak. You can make some choices. Those choices will have consequences. And it, it kind of grew. It sounds pretentious, this, but I'll say it anyway. But it kind of grew organically, I think, out of the situation and the characters. That's how it felt to me when we were playing it. It yeah. grew out of that rather than events kind of forcing themselves on the characters. So things did happen players reacted to it and the adventure kind of grew out of it really you resisted the temptation to yeah, make, make it more like a conventional adventure which you could have done i think we were talking about it before we played it you, you had that anxiety didn't you that this might not work there's a warning to everyone though you might think that it sounds like a good idea i'll do an aftermath scenario set in the world of threads it sounds great until you have to do it did you decide that before you'd read the aftermath rules? Yeah. I think, I think you had, hadn't you? You know, the foolishly. Maybe yeah. you, maybe you know, do you know, I said you shouldn't give yourself this award, but maybe you should for just reading the aftermath rules. Let's have a look <laughs> in the spurious envelope. <laughs> oh, and I get it. There we go. Won it. What a surprise. Yes. <laughs> Next up is the Olive Kinnersberg. Players, Players of Playing and Players Award. Olive Kingsburg, of course, it's a memorial award. She was a character that I had in Fungi from Yugoth who was killed by a Shantak in Egypt. So we honour her memory by awarding this. So go first with this one. I'm going to nominate my experience of playing Delta Green. And it's very much in my uh, wheelhouse, to use that expression, if I have to. Um, it's you know Because I, I love espionage, as I've said uh, previously, and it puts that in there and it's also in uh, you know you've got horror elements and i've had um two very different experiences of uh, playing so i've had um I, I think you played in this game didn't you with uh, bud which was uh, a one shot which put us into a situation that was unnerving and unsettling ultimately a bit like a, a, a twilight zone episode where you never quite know who to trust and why we were in this particular situation and i've also played with Gaz, which is a different approach, very much based on incident and action-driven in, in investigation. But I really, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed that world. I'm keen next year to play it more, but also to run some games. What what I found though is because it's essentially based on their basic role playing, whereas you feel like you're Jason Bourne, but you're more like Inspector Clouseau. <laughs> I, I suppose I like I like the idea that it's espionage and i like the idea that it you you kind of know about the mythos don't you in it you're kind of agents actively 
doing stuff. I, I say I only played the the game with Bud, so I've, apart from that, that's that's my experience. It'd be good, be good to play some more of it. And what's your nomination? I would say Mutant Year Zero, which we only started right at the end of 2020, but we had a session zero, the character creation session. I really enjoyed it because we'll talk about a year zero engine in a bit, I'm sure, because I think that's been kind of quite a significant game for us this year, game system. It reminded me how much fun it is creating characters. That idea of us all sitting down for a couple of hours and creating characters, and that year year zero engine does a really good job of creating relationships between characters and developing backstories in quite, not not in a complicated way, in a quite simple way, but I can remember sitting down on that Saturday morning and created a character. And by the end of it, it felt like all our characters had relationships with each other. All our characters had a good backstory. And it was quite satisfying because I thought, oh, you know, this you lose sight of it. You do really do lose sight. Rolling a character and rolling characters together is is part of the fun of role-playing game you've mentioned that you've mentioned that a couple of times this year because we have done it a couple of times we've done it for uh runequest glorantha and for conan and for the eberron campaign they were all rolled together but i agree with you the mutant year zero method really does encourage you to have uh, relationships with uh, each of the characters that are more meaningful and less arbitrary than some of the other um, systems. By doing that, you're immediately knitted into the world, but also knitted into each other. You're right. We've done it in Conan. And maybe that's why Mutant Year Zero stands out. Conan and RuneQuest do give you that kind of life path character creation, don't they? But what they don't do particularly well is they don't necessarily link you to the other characters, which the Year Zero engine, all all those Year Zero games do that, don't they? They link you to the other player characters. And that is a a really interesting and enjoyable element of it. Let's have a look at the spurious uh, envelope and the winner is Mutant Year Zero. Well done. Mm. Well, Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, uh, the next award is New Kid on the Top, the Tabletop. New Kid on the Top, the Tabletop. So as we mentioned earlier, we played lots of new games, new yeah. to us games this year. So what's your nomination? My nomination is it's quite easy, actually. Tales from the Loop. Tales from the Loop, yeah, we played that over summer, didn't we? I, I, we did. I, it, yeah. it was a hot summer, and um, people will forget this, that we've had in the, the UK extreme weather uh, this year. And before you go into it, I want to tell you about my uh, Tales from the Loop experience, because it's hot weather, and um, we were allowed by the state to go on a walk. State-sanctioned walk per day. Yeah. yeah. And I went on a walk locally. There's a place called uh, Winter Hill. And people who are in the northwest will know Winter Hill because it's probably the most prominent hill in the area, on which is a massive television mast. Uh, I would walk over there and uh, during this summer, with the sun beating down, and surrounded by these heather, heather fields and all these strange technologies that were supporting this television mast. Somehow, playing Tales from the Loop over the summer has got mangled in my imagination and reality and so <laughs> when i come back you know the way the way i'll process it is that i was living in the tales from the loop scenario in 2020 
but isn't isn't that the isn't that the way Tales from the Loop kind of works and part of the uh, attraction in that because it's set in a in the 80s and we were kids in the 80s and you play a kid in the 80s in the game there is an element of oh actually I've, I've lived through some of this although it's, it's you've not because it's, it's a science fiction kind of setting with all sorts of weird stuff going on but you uh you have lived through part of it and i, and I often think when we played it it'd be interesting wouldn't it to <laughs> i wonder what people who, who weren't kids or were even alive in the 80s make of Tales from the Loop. We were alive in the 80s. So we, we drew on, you draw on all that. And I ran it at BurritoCon for people who, they were kids in the 80s. So it has a certain resonance for them. It's a game that I must have had in my hands in Fanboy in Manchester. I lost count of the times that I had that game in my hand and put it back on the shelf. Because I, I always thought, it's all right this it's a very attractive rule but it's a lovely rule book it's one of those rule books you, you, you get off the shelf in the shop and go this looks nice but I always put it back because I thought these kids playing kids you can't die playing a kid is that really what you want to do for a role playing game and the answer is yes you do because <laughs> I, I bought it over lockdown I think it was the first game I bought over lockdown I thought to hell with it let's order it come on let's buy it and see what all the fuss is about and I think it is a fantastic game it's a really really enjoyable game and I'm nominating it partly because before I talk about the game itself it opened up that year zero engine so since buying that I've bought Tales from the Flood I've bought Alien I've bought Vase and, and all the games are sli- Tales from the Loop is probably the easiest version of it uh, and all the games are tweaked slightly, but they all work on the same kind of system. Uh, and I do think it's a really, really good system, really simple, effective, quite dr- kind of dramatic, pushes the, the action along really well. All those kind of things that you want from a role-playing game are there in the Year Zero engine. I think it's a fantastic system. But Tales from the Loop's a great game because you've got that nostalgia thing going on with it, but it's just really easy to run. People playing it, have an understanding of the 80s a bit like Leoness, i suppose in, in as much as i've found that when people maybe it's people of a certain age play it they immediately connect to it and get into the idea of what they're supposed to be and the world that they're living in and then on top of that on top of that the science fiction element of it is nice because you've got this the loop this big nuclear reactor and really although it gives you a bit of background and some nice maps all it really says is there's all sorts of weird experiments going on. So there's time travel if you want, there's robots, there's aliens, there's anything you want really you can have in this game. And because it's set in, in a kind of fictional 80s and everyone knows the world, as a games master, you can focus on the weird stuff a bit more and, and highlight those in the game. Uh, to answer your question about uh, the uh, 80s, I, I'm not sure that the element of the 80s is necessarily the key thing i think it's more to do with the space that it inhabits in that it deals with you know as i explained you know when i went on my state designated walk uh, to uh, winter hill everybody all of us uh, live in an urban environment have these places on the edge of town and um, that are like those spaces and that's the space in which a tales from the loop inhabits that's what it, it, it takes you to Everybody's been uh, children, 
and had those uh, childhood experiences yeah. um and uh, you know the scary environments and i do think i, I do think it plays into that um, re- really really well and again as you say the system um supports it well as well so i know. think you're right there that, that's true actually yeah maybe it's not the 80s as such it's the fact you've all been a kid yeah. yeah, it's an odd, it's an odd game from that perspective, isn't it? Because you know, you've you've not been um, an astronaut, you've not been a, a warrior uh, down a dungeon, you've not been um, a 1920s archaeologist uh, fighting Cthulhu. You, you've not, never, no one's ever been those things, but you have been a kid. Yeah, you have been a kid, and and certainly some of the some of the elements in it, although there's the science fiction element, and this is kind of played up a little bit more in things from the flood, where you're a teenager more than a kid. Um, you know, there are some kind of sort of interesting and, and potentially darker elements to it. You're a kid and you've got a family, and what are your parents like? Are your parents divorced? Are your parents having problems? This kind, of, and it kind of explores some of those things, which we're not certainly from our experience, we're not used to dealing with things like that yeah. um, and I thought one of the funny, funniest just to kind of finish on it one of the funniest things about Tales from the Loop was that idea you can't die you know you can't die in it because you're a kid but you can become what's called broken and in the very first adventure you and Eddie both became broken which means if that happens you're effectively out of the game and the the adventure is sorted out i think in the adventure there was this time portal and there were dinosaurs drifting through the time portal causing you went up into the mountains to sort it out and you both ended up broken and basically you what you do when that happens is you say well it's the problem is resolved by another means and you were both brought back to, to town uh, by the by ambulances and the police and you were both incredibly miffed about it it was yeah. worse than dying because yeah. you played those characters again next time as the games master I could exploit the ridicule of the school that you were these two idiots who went into the mountains and had to be rescued by the by the ambulance yeah, yeah. of course no yeah. one knew about the dinosaurs but you know and, and some of the girls at school put fun at you and it was kind of funny because i thought it's kind of worse than dying yeah. <laughs> this is worse than your characters it's a total party kill you had to bring up uh, very personal trauma um, <laughs> i should have x-carded it at that point particularly the ridicule by the girls <laughs> my nomination is a much more uh, conventional setting conan 2d20 uh, system game which we ran for eight sessions uh, this year in this like uh weirdness i have been purchasing all these supplements in hardbacks and they're very attractive um, books i enjoyed the fact that we persevered with the 2d20 system normally i would have abandoned it after uh, two attempts because um, it just wasn't clicking and um, the way we tried to introduce it was like a, a computer game so in computer games, to take you through it, they take you through like a training level, don't they? And uh, you slowly get new elements um, brought in to the uh, playing experience. So that's what we did over several weeks. We introduced new concepts uh, into in, into the game and gradually built it up. And, uh, you know, the, as I say, the first couple of sessions were a bit faltering and everybody struggled a little uh, with dealing with it. But in the end... The 2D20 system, as we said in the um, podcast that we did about it, worked really well for the pulp experience. I, I agree with you. I think there's an interesting thing about it that 
as, as I said earlier, with, with games, that, that growing process where playing something once or twice doesn't really give it the room to, to get into your head and doesn't give you enough opportunity to really play it. That is that is the problem, isn't it? That something like the 2D20 system, there's a lot, there is a lot going on and there's still bits of it, like the magic system, there's still bits of it that I think I'm not entirely sure how this works. But at the same time, playing with it and persevering with it did yield kind of benefits and did yield a lot of fun. Okay, let's look at the uh, spurious envelope and I'm just opening it up. It's Tales from the Loop. Games Master Screen. Welcome to the Games Master Screen in the room of role-playing rambling. I've got Dave with me again, Dave Morris. So, hello, Dave. Hi, Doug. Thanks Hi. for having me. That's okay. I'm going to put this uh, screen between us uh, to hide my okay. secrets. <laughs> and I've got a table in front of me that I'm going to roll apparently at random. It's very uh, old school. Yes, to see whether there's any <laughs> topics to discuss here. So here goes. Let's, uh, I've hit a critical straight away here. And that's a zero one White Dwarf. Cause, white Dwarf, yeah. Yeah, you had a big involvement with White Dwarf in the early years. So how, how did you get involved in the magazine? It was almost a kind of double entry thing. Initially, uh, straight out of college, I published a, a role-playing game called Mortal Kombat that was designed by a friend of mine, Steve Foster, and I published it with a, another friend of mine, Nick Henfrey. And we, we were schlepping around London with copies of this thing trying to flog them. And uh, we went into this little shop, Games Workshop, on Dowling Road in Hammersmith. I think it was one of the Olsen brothers who were sort of the head honchos at the shop level said, oh, we'd take 50 copies of that. So Nick and I were like, well, let's go to the pub. 50 copies. Wow, we're going to be tycoons. And then we went in again a few weeks later and he was a bit crestfallen. He said, oh, I've, I've spoken to Ian and Steve. And uh, they say we can't take 50 copies of an unknown game, but we'll take 10 but they'd like to see you. So I go up to see Ian and Steve. They had a tiny little office above this shop in which the entire business of workshop and White Dwarf was being done. So I don't, it, was, it was smaller than the room I'm in now, I think, but you've got Ian and Steve, Albie Fury, Andy Slack, a bunch of other people doing paste-ups, you know, because it was those days. And... Um, so they said, yeah, we liked your Mortal Kombat game. Could you design us uh, a new role-playing game, which we're going to publish, called Adventure? I wasn't so keen on the title, but Ian kept saying, I want to put a, an ad that says, are you ready for Adventure? And so I got started on that one, and that was because they were losing the D&D license. But six months or so later, they looked like picking up the... RuneQuest license, so they kind of cooled off on that. So I thought, oh, well, that was an interesting experience. But um, then a, a, about a year later, I was playing some games with a friend of mine, Jamie Thompson. He said, oh, my mum's landed me a job at Games Workshop. And I said, oh, I could have put in a word for you. I know those guys. And he said, I'm going to be assistant editor on White Dwarf. So I thought, I'll, I'll do you some articles if you like. I ended up writing about half the magazine on some occasions with various pseudonyms. They'd moved by then to a, an office, uh, I think it was Sunbeam Road. Anyway, it's yes. a sort of industrial complex in the west of London and um, a long way out of town from what I remember. So once Jamie was installed there, it turned out he, was, he wasn't really the assistant editor. He was actually the editor because Ian and Steve were far too busy to have anything to do with the magazine. First of all, Jamie and then 
not long afterwards, another friend of mine, Ian Marsh, got a job there. And so I'd basically go in and type up a scenario, whatever they wanted. Basically, they said, we need a, we need a scenario for basic D&D. Can you do one this morning? Go, yeah. Okay. Give us a paper and I'll whack it out. And bizarrely, by this stage, it wasn't paste-ups anymore, but they would, they would type everything and it would be taken to another room where it would be retyped into this machine they had. And then that would print out the, the, the page and it would be brought back to Jamie for him to correct in red ink and then be taken back to be retyped. So I was saying, why don't you just have a computer on your desk and do it all that way? That was like, what madness are you talking? So strange days. But yeah, so that's how I got involved in writing, you know, most of White Dwarf. And, and that was during what we called the uh, first golden age of uh, White Dwarf. That's what I call it too. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the pseudonyms that you used then? So- oh, there was, uh, there was Phil Holmes, Liz Fletcher. Oh, there was a Belgariad thing. I can't even remember. Sometimes Jamie would just make something up and stick it on. I'm exaggerating when I say half the magazine, but, you know, usually two or three articles per issue, I think. And I was doing room rights as well, of course. It's just that they didn't want to see the same name all the way down the column, I guess. And uh, when Ian Marsh uh, was on the podcast, he said that his first encounter with you was at 10 o'clock in the morning. You were drinking a bottle of whiskey. Is that, is yeah, that true? see, I, I know, because I've said this many times, his, his memory is clouded. You know, my memory of the uh, the 80s is fairly ropey from uh, uh, various substances, but I didn't get, I hated whiskey back then because I'd never discovered malt whiskey. So this is why I know for a fact it could not have been whiskey because single malt, of course, although I wouldn't offend it by drinking it in the middle of the morning, but I needed something I could carry easily in my pocket, small bottle of vodka, say small you know half bottle and so i and also something to fuel me through the mornings which you know was not my best time then because i'd often have been partying till three in the morning before so bottle of vodka packet of fags menthol actually i remember which is now outlawed and just sit there and and bang away at the electric typewriter so anyway ian Ian remembers a bit. I remember he also used to get very annoyed because I put my feet up on his desk. And I think that's, and he, he was noticing that and forgetting that it was vodka, not whiskey. That's what was going on. Yeah. I, I have in my imagination, uh, like uh, almost famous, the rock and roll years of uh, white, <laughs> white Dwarf. Is that? that was it exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was that glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> So in in that office in Sunbeam Road, it'd be you, Jamie, uh, and uh, Ian working the predominantly, was it? Yeah, I remember one day actually. It they were they had a lot more room than than um, than they had in Dowling Road, but Ian and Steve had a little office, two little offices next to each other with a partition, but they could yell over the partition. So you'd be talking to one of them, and they'd yell, "Hey, lad!" He says, "What? Come round here," and so we'd, you know, you'd talk about some project or whatever like that. But then Jamie was put in his own room and Ian had, was quite a smart cookie. And he said during the interview, he, he liked Jamie, but he realized that he better be watched at all times. So he put initially, 
he'd put him in his own room and he'd just glance through the little partition from time to time to make sure Jamie was working. But he, he didn't want to put him in with anyone else because he said Jamie will just natter the whole time because <laughs> he's very social, you know, and he won't, uh, he won't get on with the work. But after, I think after a probation period of about a year, he decided it was okay to have Ian go in there with him. And then after about another six months, I think they decided Mark Gascoigne could go in there as well. And I suspect a lot less work got done by Jamie, but luckily Ian and Mark were doing a lot more. So it, it happened. But anyway, I was going to say one morning I went in and they'd invited an artist and this fellow turned up and he, he just out of school. In fact, I think he had actually was still at school and he brought his portfolio and everyone had forgotten he was coming in. So he laid out his artwork in the doorway. I had to actually, I came in and I had to tread over, you know, step over it. And I was looking at it thinking, it's really good. And it was press day the next day. So nobody was taking any notice. Jamie was sort of going, I'm sorry, we forgot, but I've got to get this to press. And But I was thinking, that was pretty good. That's great artwork. And then two weeks later, I think, I was talking to a publisher who said, we're going to need an artist for your game books. And I said, oh, I met this chap and he did some great stuff. So I, f- I phoned up Jamie because I vaguely remembered that this guy had lived on the South Coast and I was going down to, to, uh, to Pevensey for the weekend. So I phoned up Jamie and said, where's that guy live? Give me his number because I'm going to give him a call. And Jamie said, oh, I had got his number, but it's in my jeans and they've gone in the washing machine. <laughs> so he got them out of the washing machine and he could just about read the telephone number. He gave it to me and I phoned the guy up and said, come over to Pevensey, we'll talk about you doing a book. And it was Leo Hartas. And that's how I met him. And we've been friends ever since and done loads of projects together. But it was all because Jamie didn't put on extra hot. If he'd done that, no chance. (laughs) That's a great story. Thanks for that. Let me go go back to the table. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've uh, rolled a nine and a nine. And we've talked a little bit about this, but Techimel. Uh, because uh, you produced uh, fanzines for that, didn't you, in the 90s? Yes, so I did something called The Eye of All-Seeing Wonder. In, in Tecamel, there are a bunch of technological devices of the ancients called eyes, and they all have evocative names like the excellent ruby eye and the eye of being an unimpeachable shield against foes. And so they're little steel spheres that come with charges and you press a button and they have different effects. And um, in fact, we used to have ways of testing them on unlucky NPCs because you never knew if they were written in an ancient language exactly what you'd got. So you had to you had to figure it out by shooting somebody with it. Sometimes they were good though. They'd be a healing eye or something. And one of them was the eyeful seeing wonder, which is kind of like a means of seeing invisible objects. And so that was the name of the fanzine. And I did that for four issues. Not a huge, obviously, circulation, but today it would just have been a blog, you know, but there was nothing like that then. So, and Tecamel really needed, I think, something a bit more accessible, you know, something that people could read and just think, oh, that might be fun, because everything that came out was getting more and more complex. It was what we call narrow casting, you know, everything was designed to be for people who are totally into it. That was great material, but there was less and less introductory level stuff. And I suppose because of things like Dragon Warriors, I'm quite aware of the need to to not just cater to the person who's already done it for, you know, decades. Every generation, there's a new bunch of people coming along who are going to be interested in something and you want to make it welcoming for them. And so the fanzine was an attempt to do that, I think. 
of course it fails at that because it's only going to be bought by fans but i was it's kind of hoping and it is online now on on techml.com so anybody could find it well, I, I, I'm fascinated by uh, the world, but I'm put off by the sheer volume uh, mm-hmm. of stuff. A little bit like uh, we were saying about Glorantha, you know, that where is the starting point? So it's interesting to know that. It, so this is a way into the, into the world, is it? Yeah, I mean, um, something that Greg Stafford used to say was, you know, he wanted people to start with a small part of the world and work their way out. And I think <clears throat> you've always got the freedom to do that. I mean, Tecamel is daunting if you said to, you know, if you threw a 200-page book in front of a player and say, read all that, and then we'll start playing. But if you say to, even if you're running it, you don't have to do that. You just have to think, jump in and think a little bit Jack Vance, a little bit Clark Ashton Smith, a little bit Robert E. Howard, play how you feel. I mean, that's how we got started. And then it was years later that a linguist friend of mine said, you're pronouncing everything wrong because he, he, he looked in the back and it explains how to pre- And it's like I now, if people are talking about Lord of the Rings and they say Sauron, I always go, they say Sauron, and I always go, Sauron, it's Sauron. He actually says, says in the back, you know, it's like smaug, it's not smog. And so now we, we hopefully pronounce it a little bit better. But I notice even the people who played in Professor Barker's game always say uh, Tecumel. And it should be tekumel, 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 in fact. So an accent, you know, basically we all speak with a modern uh, English accent when speaking Soliani, the language. So you don't, I, you know, there's no test at the end of it. If, if people get it wrong and they enjoy it, Professor Barker used to say, make your own tekumel. Just, just use, if you want to look at all this material, if you have a question and you care what I think as, as the creator of it, by all means, use what I say. But if you have a better idea, go with that. So I don't think people need to worry in that sense about that. I, I would just say jump in and have fun. And what normally happens is as players are playing, they start to get more interested in the detail that Professor Barker put in there. And then when you actually look at it, you think this is quite clever. I mean, he's done a lot of brilliant work, but you don't need, to, you don't need it till you need it. Uh, you know, you can you can play perfectly well without that. Well, I'm going to seek those out then. Thank mm-hmm. you. Okay, let's go back to the table. Uh, so I've rolled a 20, which means that I have to go into uh, another table, a nested table, a secret table. Oh, that's best, best sort. Good. Uh, and that's a four. That's sending me to yet another. T- it's getting very esoteric, this. And uh, that's a one. So this is Tetsubo. Oh, that what, is obscure. Yes. That? Well, Tetsubo is, uh, years ago, Paul Coburn at Workshop uh, got in touch with me and Jamie and said he wanted a, a Japanese supplement for Warhammer. And we were always into, you know, Japanese stuff and Kurosawa movies and so on. So uh, we agreed to do that and had loads of fun, basically reading lots of Japanese folklore. And, uh, and then the day we were due to deliver it this is quite a pattern with my work for workshop i realized but the day we were due to deliver it paul coben phoned up and said oh i'm leaving workshop by the way i said uh, i wonder if that will affect the likelihood of tetsubo actually going forward and of course in any organization when the guy who commissioned something goes nobody wants to handle the project because if it's a success he'll get the credit and if it's a failure they'll get the blame so and then in the end we said let's just agree a kill fee and get it back just to have it really it sat in the attic for ages and then 
a year and a bit ago, a guy called Daniel Fox, who has a game called Zweihender, which is a kind of Warhammer heartbreaker thing. Zweihender is not nearly a, a description of the rule book, by the way. I think it should be Dreihender at least. But anyway, he sent us a copy of it and said, uh, you know, if the postman survives bringing that book to you, maybe you could turn Tetsubo into a, a Zweihender supplement. So we had a bit of a go at that, but I think he got a, diff- a new publishing deal or something. Anyway, he got sidetracked and the the option expired. But by now, I had at least had a reason to scan everything because it was all, you know, in print, old printouts, not on disc. And so I thought I should probably do something with it. Paul Mason, who's one of my old uh, Tecamel buddies, and he moved out to Japan 25 years ago, married a Japanese woman. He's written a a game, which I think he might finally publish called uh, Outlaws, which is based on the water margin. It's got a lot of Eastern concepts in it, which are quite close, obviously, to to what would be useful for Japan, but it needs quite a lot of change because just in the same way that Jap- Japanese culture was influenced by Chinese, but it became its own thing. So, but nonetheless, it it looked like the best fit for the for the for the book. So, uh, and also it got the advantage that Paul, being since he's now Japanese, he can advise me on the cultural and linguistic side of it. I'm hoping again that will that's a thing that I kind of do when I'm not doing Jewel Spider when I need to mull over something i'll go back to just because the tetsubo thing doesn't require much more than putting the mechanics of paul's outlaw system into the the book that jamie and i originally wrote it's kind of an odd thing though because it's got warhammer legacy stuff like chaos in there and in the end i thought well i'll just leave it and i have left notes saying some of this stuff just doesn't fit japan at all but here it is and if you want to play it that way you can so it's a little bit of it's going to be one for people to use as a as a toolbox for the game they want to play. It's not I'm not trying to make it a fully polished out of the box ready to play type thing, although you could just play it as written, but it's mainly for the aficionados, I suppose, of the people who will two or three people who are waiting for it since the eighties. It's finally <laughs> going to come out. Oh I look forward to that. Okay. I'm going to roll again. Okay. Okay, this is 25, and this is uh, something that you're known for, for and uh, continue to uh, be interested in. That's uh, game books, because you did have a contribution to the Fighting Fantasy series, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh, quite late in the day, I did half of um, The Keep of the Lich Lord. Or was it The Lord of Shadow Keep? Keep of the Lich Lord uh, with, with Jamie. But actually, I was going to to be involved with fighting fantasy much earlier than that. Oliver Johnson and I had had a meeting with Philippa Dickinson. Uh, that was the Lord of Shadow Keep. And it was going to be about fighting fantasy number 10, I think, when they realized that Ian and Steve couldn't just keep writing them themselves. We went along and signed the deal, but I've forgotten exactly why, but Oliver was the, the one who signed that contract because I think I was, I was already signed to do the Golden Dragon books with Grafton. And that was like four books. So I said, I won't have much time, but you, you basically you handle Lord of Shadowkeep and, um, and I'll help you with the flow charting because that's not Oliver's strong point, really. In fact, it was kind of interesting because did, he did show me the flow chart and I started mapping it. And I said, it, it doesn't physically make any sense. Like when you turn left here, you end up in a place that you would have got to if you turned right over there. It's just 
the map doesn't make any sense. He's, does it have to? And I go, well, I think the flowchart will make more sense if the map does. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so Oliver had a drink with the chief editor, Angela Sheehan, at, um, at Grafton, and she commissioned him to do two. So the next I knew, but I assumed he was just getting on with Lord of Shadowkeep. I got a call from Philippa Dickinson at Puffin. It goes, I, I gather that you've, you've backed out of Lord of Shadowkeep. You're taking it to a different publisher. And I go, uh, I thought Oliver was writing it. Should I've just spoken to Oliver and he told me he's told, you told him not to. And I go, oh, that's an interesting conversation. <laughs> so I got the flack. Um, that's, I often end up being the person who has to take the blame for more timid friends, I have to say. But um, it should have been there for Lord of Shadowkeep, the, I think, 10th book. And it was even advertised in the back of one of the sorcery books as one of the fighting fantasy. But it ended up as a golden dragon. I pitched quite much later because I did, I prefer doing my own thing. So I did Golden Dragon and Blood Sword and the virtual reality books with Mark Smith. And I think probably at some point in the late 80s early 90s jamie and i had pitched a few ideas to puffin mark gascoigne was was the editor there then and they picked i think probably the least interesting one which was the keepers of lich lord because we'd got one the one i really wanted to do was called the keeper of the seven keys and it was one where you play this the guardian or the the sorcerer who's in charge of this ancient keep and a bunch of NPC heroes who believe you to be evil have decided to attack. And it would have been quite complex in terms of our use of keywords and, you know, the flowchart stuff. But I don't know. It, they probably didn't feel that that was too unique a thing to fit into the fighting fantasy mold. So we did the Keeper of the Lich Lord. And then I think just after that, we um, finally got a publisher to take the Fabled Lands, which we'd been actually trying to get publishers to to agree to do for a long time. The idea of a, a series of game books that are one huge campaign and that each book is a geographical area, but you can leave a book, go into another book, adventure around, buy stuff, come back, sell stuff in the first book. So you've got continual quests that interlock across the whole series. And I know we were pitching that from the mid eighties. We originally suggested it as an Arthurian setting but we needed a bigger world than just you know the arthurian stuff finally pan took it and uh, unfortunately we only got halfway through before the game book craze was dying out and um and i think they probably didn't charge enough for the books because you know they're large format and they have fold outs and when they actually gave us the sales figures jamie was saying but these are great sales figures and they said yes but it isn't making us enough money and he said just charge an extra couple of quid. He said, oh, people would buy them. He said, they certainly would because they are, you're getting quite a lot for your money. You know? And most game book readers would be, I think, perfectly capable of looking at a book that was, I think at the time, let's say costing $3.99, another one costing $5.99 and think, well, how much more, more am I getting? Whereas the publisher's view was, if it's $5.99, they'll just not even look at it. And I, I think that was a mistake. But anyway, they, they weren't making enough of a profit, even though they had got something like 25,000 actual players, you know, which was a respectable um, sales figures. So the series ended then, uh, although we have managed to do one more through a Kickstarter since then. And we keep talking about trying to finish the series, but it's a lot harder because of the setup costs and, you know, all the artwork and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, but that I think that was the those are the game books we were kind of gearing up to do throughout the rest of our game book career because of the complexity of them. Yeah, I, th- I think the uh, Fable Lands uh, project is an extraordinary achievement. It really pushes the uh, boundaries of what's possible with mm. that kind of uh, gaming technology, if you like. Yeah. I, one of our programmers at IDOS, we were working on a, a massively multiplayer game in the 90s, and I, he'd seen one of our books, and he said, it's just a mystery to me why you were trying to do this in paper and ink when a computer could do it so much better. And I go, well, you know, that's that's the technology we had then, and um, people wanted to buy them. But, I mean, I had other innovations I wanted to try out. One was a note your current paragraph, and then I could go down into a current quest bit that could occur anywhere. So if, for example, you had met a mysterious knight, I could have you meet the mysterious knight again, one of eight or nine different locations, continue with the next bit of your adventure with him, you know, that's whatever he would tell you, and then revert to where you were on the map and continue the adventure, which would be quite fun because, you know, it makes, it means a patron, for example, could show up in one of 20 books, tell you the next bit of your quest. And it would be, it wouldn't, any, any player could get that bit of quest wherever they were. And then the next time they met the patron, whichever book they were in, and it, they could meet him again in any one of many books. He would remember that they, he'd given them that bit, ask for that thing, and give them the next bit. So, yeah, we were we were pushing. We're trying to get basically paper, you know, dead tree stuff into computer technology, really. And and this time last year, I spoke to uh, Jamie Thompson, and we mentioned uh, Can You Brexit uh, as a book. And it's still relevant. It's still, it's a game you still can play. <laughs> it is, yeah. You can see all the possible ways it needn't have been quite as disastrously stupid as it was. But um, yeah, I, I, I didn't think when I was writing it that uh, we would get to where we are now. I, th- I think I put that in as a farcical, this is the maddest possible outcome, but it is in there even so. And uh, Boris Johnson becoming the leader of the, Tory party, I think, was was one of the possible outcomes. And again, I thought that nobody would make that guy the leader of the Tory party. Surely, but there we are. Um, and <laughs> and it's you are it is fun because you have to think I have to cover everything because you know it's a game book. So and it, it, you never know what's going to happen. So um, we even had another general election in there, which at that point nobody thought in twenty seventeen. I think that we were going to have another general election because they didn't think Labour would agree to it. And, but we, you know, we built that in as a possibility and lo and behold. So, yeah, if only I could have given a copy to everybody in the House of Commons back then. I wonder if they, they would have played it and learnt something from it. Yeah, that's how it comes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, final roll. Okay, so this is uh, five and this is novelizations because you're involved in uh, novelizing some some things I, I know that I, I, this is one that I read I think at the time uh, the Nightmare series you were involved in that that came about because Tim Child who was the producer <clears throat> had written a, a short novel Corgi Transworld got me in to do a game book section at the back I think because they weren't convinced that people would it was a good way to get boys in particular to pick up the book I think so if there's a game book bit and then they realized that the novel was because Tim's a TV producer and the novel was written more like a script than a novel. So 
there were too many changes of scene and things like that. So they said, can you also rewrite the novel? And so I rewrote that one. And then that became every year they'd say, can you write us a, a short novel and a game book thing to tie in with Nightmare? And uh, I'd go up and see Tim Child and sometimes watch the filming and stuff like that. So that was quite fun. That got me into doing, basically, Corgi then assumed I would be on hand for any novelizations. So they um, they said, what oh, what about doing novelizations for Thunderbirds and Stingray, which I was a huge fan of as a kid and probably would have done for nothing if they'd said. But um, <laughs> in fact, I found my old Stingray and Thunderbirds books that had cutaways scanned them, took them into Transworld and said, you want to put cutaways in? What I used to love as a kid was a cutaway of Thunderbird 1, look. And they gave them to their artists and put cutaways in because I'd said, that's going to really be a cool thing. So I really enjoyed that because I got to watch the episodes, some of which, you know, like sometimes you look at something when you're a kid and you think, oh God, it was terrible, but I guess I liked it when I was little. Other times you look at something, like I was watching some old Steed and Mrs. Peel Avengers episodes. I think I remember these being very creepy and everything. And I watched one house that Jack built and it was, it was still brilliant. It was like, mm. wow, I was, I was right when I was nine. And I thought that was great. So, and, and some of those Thunderbirds episodes, they were actually good. And, and um, so I did those and then Captain Scarlet was tricky because I was, I was never such a big fan of Captain Scarlet. And I thought the problem was, he's always going to come back from the dead anyway. So what's the threat? So it's quite hard to put a sense of threat into the books. Although um, I think I, I did okay with those, but um, then they came along with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They wanted uh, me to do novelizations of those. And that I think simply because some of the editors at Transworld knew that I was into comic books and um so, and they knew that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles had started as a comic, even though I kept having to explain to them that the comic was a kind of underground indie, quite dark comic and that the, the TV show was not at all. Um, and then they wanted me to do the novelization of the movie. And that was interesting because they said, uh, we need it basically done in two and a half weeks. And because we got to publish it to come out when the movie came and nobody had thought about this. So it's normally you have months, you know, sometimes up to a between writing the thing and it comes out but this was literally down to i think four weeks turnaround and they i said okay well send me the movie at least oh we haven't got the movie i'll send you the script so so they sent me the script and i wrote the novelization from the script the sales reps were delighted i went to a, a party and they were going wow you you've turned around the whole thing come and watch the premiere you know they were having a little screening in the west end so i went to the screening and afterwards i was going but they, they've actually changed the movie quite a bit from the script you gave me. <laughs> and um, they built in a whole other uh, subplot and cut a major part of the script that I'd used. So if anybody gets that, they actually can read the story as it was originally going to be, presumably about the script I must have been sent was probably from a year earlier than the one they actually used to make the movie. So anyway, so I, yeah, I would be doing all sorts of these things for, for them and uh, just became, I think, the, if they had a show and they knew there was going to be a tie-in, there was one called Cops. They said, can you do some novels? We haven't got any of the scripts or the shows, so you just have to make up the stories, which is what I, I did with most of the the Turtles as well. I had to just make up the stories of those. So they weren't really novelizations so much as tie-ins. 
But with Cops, I wrote several novels uh, and it was kind of a cyberpunk future thing. So I kind of enjoyed doing it. But then they said, oh, they're not going to show the, the show over here after all. So we'll pay you half as much. It's like, ah, OK. And they killed the series. But I was thinking, well, I still wrote the whole novel. But anyway, you've got to accept that in publishing, I'm afraid. Sometimes I, they, I made up for it because the American publisher um, of Bantam, that was the American division of Transworld, had phoned me up about the, the Turtles books and they said, can we buy them? And I said, well, I thought you already had. I mean, I, I've, I've done six of these things. And, uh, and he said, yeah, the contract, because you've written original stories that the TV people might want to adapt, we haven't got the rights to those in America. So I have to pay you again. And I go, well, thank you very much. I'll, I'll take that. And then the publishers in Britain got in touch and said, could you turn that down, please? Because it makes us look bad. And it's like, oh, no, I'm not. What are you talking about? <laughs> Especially since they hadn't paid me for cops. So I took that. And I, but I think that was probably the last novelization they asked me to do. They were quite peeved. But I was quite happy to be paid twice for a book. So yeah. it worked out okay. That's, that's great. Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, appearing on the other side of the Games Master screen. And uh, it's been great talking to you, Dave. Yeah, great. Thanks, Dirk. The Grog is part two. So the next award is the Captain Birdseye Award, the uh, Fish Finger Award. This yeah. is the thing that we could do without. I could explain why it's called the Fish Finger Award, but it's far too complicated. Probably suck the life out of it, wouldn't it, if we explain it? It would, yeah. And if you don't know now, then you'll never know. Uh, because this is a very special year uh, for various reasons, stuff we want to get rid of, what I'm going to do is give you a cathartic experience, Blythe. Okay. You know, with my cups of my, my pot of tea and my mindfulness, imagine, if you will, <laughs> that you are in a hot air balloon and okay. you are throwing over the side burdens so that you can float yes. and become... Yes, and become... Yes, oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, this. This will do me the power of God, this, I'm sure. Yeah, people pay a lot for this kind of thing. Are you in yeah. the hot air balloon? <laughs> no, I've already thrown myself out. Oh, I see, good. All right, that's <laughs> okay. That makes it easier. Carry on. <laughs> I'm, stuck in a, I'm stuck in a hot air balloon with a megalomaniac. What am I going to throw out first? <laughs> Before I throw you out, yeah? Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. So first thing, novelty Zoom backgrounds. Novelty Zoom backgrounds. So that when we started this and people discovered uh, Zoom quite quickly, people started to have thematic backgrounds. I know what you mean. I, I'm not sure if it's the novelty Zoom background that's the problem. I think more of the problem is the... What, for want of a better term, the realistic Zoom background. So I was I was in a meeting, work meeting with somebody. During the meeting, I was looking at, at the room behind them and thinking, "I'm living quite a nice." That's a because he live in a lakeside house. Seems to live in a lakeside house, and then realise it's no, it's, it's, it's one of these fake backgrounds, isn't it? I mean, it's all right if you if you have like a I don't know a monster behind you or the the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. I'm I'm kind of all right with that. I'm okay with that because it's obviously what annoys me is people who, who use the novelty background to make the house look better than it is. The, That's the, 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 the thing I think, yeah, okay, yeah, have the um, Starship Enterprise at the back of you. But yeah. you, you've got to realize that when you're playing uh, your next game, which may be Call of Cthulhu, you're still in the uh, bridge of the Enterprise. 
It's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. Like an inappro- it's inappropriate. In a, yeah, right. Inappropriate setting. And, and the other, the other thing is, is that um, depending on the movements that you make, they become like a disembodied head, and so they're floating there, like. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that where people lean back. <laughs> Cthulhu devours the head. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, on the body. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, they, yeah, they're 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 headless. <laughs> headless looking at you oh they look like um norman lovett in uh the red dwarf you know that <laughs> floating head yeah right? floating head yeah yeah so, so you're keeping that in for now you're keeping that in, keep you, that you, in for now i think no, i keep okay. that in for now i'm not i'm not too upset by them next thing is people knowing macros people knowing macros straight over the side <laughs> clever asses it, one of the things that has happened this year is that people have, be, have become more competent haven't they and i know of online play yeah so we, we're kind of veterans aren't we we call ourselves veterans because four years ago we discovered online play and we've been we, we, we've been doing it and it's been the main mode of us uh playing over the uh, past few years but because of lockdown, more people have uh, developed competency in it and um, are, are doing it more. So you've got more players to play with. All very positive. However, I know this puts me in a bad light, Blythe, but I think I preferred it when people didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've kind of stood still. People have overtaken <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, you know what you mean. Yeah, Just use the dice roller. There's a dice roller, is there? Yeah, there's yeah. a dice roller. I played a game of, um, I played a game, I had this experience. So I don't use the macro, I just use a dice roller. Yeah. I'm an idiot. I just click on a, look, click on this dice shape button. Oh, it rolls a D8. Great. But I played a game of Liminal um, over the summer, which was which fine. It was a good game, but um, played it um, on Discord, Discord. And I've never, it's the only time I've used Discord for a game. Um, and my, my computer didn't like the video, so we ended up using Google Hangouts. But we use Discord for the dice rolls, and you have to type in the little macros. And it, it really irritated me because I essentially felt like an idiot all the way. It's not difficult, but I kept, you know, like the first three or four or five, six, yeah. seven or eight times. No, 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 no. I, I did so, it so, wrong. It's, it's, it's forward slash R. Uh, and uh, oh, exclamation mark, right. open bracket, D10 plus one. <laughs> yeah. With an asterisk. No, that, no, no, you put an anthracite. You put an anthracite in. You know that. You're getting oh, that. Is there, not a, is there not a button shaped like a dice? <laughs> Leave me alone. Stop. Yeah. Oh, that, that game was like that. I would type in, <laughs> type it in, and I'd say, nothing's happened. And they'd go, yeah, yeah, you've, you've not typed it in right. The next one is, Compulsive purchases, impulse buys. Now we, we've uh, yeah, we've mentioned this a bit. It's going over the side as well. I've done I've done a lot of that. Done a lot of that, and and sometimes it's it has it has backfired. I've I've ordered things, and when when they've arrived, I've thought, oh, why, why have I got? Why did I get this? And it I does don't... come from it. It does come from lockdown, and it comes from having a lot of time on your hands. And as you said, it, it's partly because you're not doing anything else. So you get a bit, you, you're just looking at a computer all day and looking at stuff and reading Twitter and seeing the latest shiny thing to buy, which was always the case before lockdown, but it's just become more enhanced 
But at the same time, it does. It, there is a question mark over: Am I going to use this? Am I going to play this? That it is. It is a problem, really. Been draw- I've been drawn to um, Kickstarters, and I, and I vowed to myself that I wouldn't wait mm. till it became uh, retail available. But Twilight Two Thousand, I got suck sucked into that. Suck it in. It will be good. <laughs> be a good game. It's not that these games are no good. It's not that they're no good, is it? I mean, that in some ways, that's that's not the problem. It's not a case of, oh, I bought something and I think, oh, it's not very good. It's not. It's rubbish. That's that's not the case at all. Good example is it over the summer I bought the role playing game Worm Worm spelled W Worm Worm W U R M. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Worm, which is a Stone Age role playing game. It's a role-playing game set in the kind of Neolithic age, I think. Um, and it's a good it's a good game. It's a good system. The setting's good. But it's the kind of game that requires you to maybe play it over several sessions. I'm not, I'm not sure I can fit that in. I don't think I can fit it in. And I did. I've not fit it in this year. I don't think I'd fit it in next year because there's other things looking want, that want my attention. That And that creates its own disappointment almost. Oh look, I've got all these these things that I want to run, but I can't I can't run them all. Over the side. They gotta they gotta stop. That's just condemning the games industry there, aren't they? The next one is the delay in dice rolls. Delay in dice rolls. Roll twenty, yeah. Have have you rolled it? Yeah, I've rolled it. I can't see anything. Should I roll it again? No, give it a minute. Give it a minute. Has it I can't see anything. Can you see anything? No, I can't see anything. Oh, I think I can see something. Oh, no, no, sorry, that's your last roll. No, 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 it's not. Come I'll roll it again. Oh, I can see two. you've rolled two, two now. There's two now there. They, they both come up at the same time. Which roll do you take? The better one. Yeah, that drives you nuts. <laughs> so you still got worse this year. Is that just because we played more online, or is that because more people are using roll 20? In the last few uh, games I've started to say, oh, well, just just roll your dice because you're not they're not getting any action, are you? The, your plastic mm. dice that are on your desk everywhere, yeah. they're not getting any action, are they? Those dice warm them up. Well, one of the funniest comments of the year for me was when we played Electric Bastion Land Barney, and we just rolled the dice, didn't we? We didn't yeah. use the dice roller. And he, his view, which I think is very funny, his view was, well, if someone's rolling dice and cheating feels the need to cheat then they obviously have a deep-seated psychological need to do that, and we have to accept it. Okay. Is that going over the side, the delay in uh, dice rolls? Sometimes it adds a bit of suspense, doesn't it? Yeah. First time it happens, it does. Yeah, throw it over. <laughs> Everything's going over. <laughs> no, you still got the Zoom backgrounds. Okay, and uh, we've got one here. The phrase, lean into. The phrase, lean into. What, what do you mean? Go on, explain. Yeah, I think uh, the, the phrase lean into is uh, 2020's uh, leverage. Um, so it's one of those uh, phrases oh, right. that uh, okay. people pepper into the conversation. You listen to podcasts. I don't blame them because we all hook onto these little memes, yeah. don't we? But when people, oh, yeah, the players lean into it. It's good when they lean into it. Great games masters. You could ignore it, or you could lean into it. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's like engage with it. Yeah. Is that what it means? Lean into they, it. They engage with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Throw that over the side. 
don't have sad because I'd look I, if I'm in the balloon, I'd pick that up and go, What's this? I'll throw it over the side. I don't even know what it means. I might, I might, on reflection, I'm not sure if I would keep the macro. I think the macro people can stay actually. This year, uh, Mark created a best left buried carriage sheet and that used macros and, and programming, coding stuff and all that. And I was very, I was really impressed. It was like magic. It was like sorcery. We've created a carriage sheet with, with roles and everything on it. So I think, yeah, macros ca- can be annoying when you're an idiot like me and you just want to push buttons. But on the, they have the use, don't they? Yeah. I keep them in the balloon because you never, where's the balloon going to land? It might land somewhere and I'll need someone who can do macros. Yeah. With all the other things. No, including you, not going to need them. So off, <laughs> up, up and away, you soar off with Mark yeah. into the Macross. <laughs> Next one is the uh, Sharon Osborne Award. It looks old, but it's actually new. One of the reasons why we had a fallow year last year for this uh, award, we didn't do it last year, is we struggled to find things to arbitrarily squeeze into these... <laughs> Things that we've created. Yeah, we've created things. We have to find things to fit. We've not thought it through properly. <laughs> and this one in particular created a, a, a difficulty because when we first started the awards, there was a glut of uh, yeah. games that were reissues or new well, editions like re, of old yeah, games. Re, re, yes, repackaging and reprinting of, of old games and new, new editions of old games. There was a run of them. But that's kind of... I'm not sure it stopped, but it's certainly in terms of the games we play and are interested in, it seems to have stopped. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to propose um, mm. that we change this award to uh, the Ozzy Osbourne Award. Yeah. Um, it's adult and it's on its last legs, but somehow keeps on going. You mean we keep coming back to it? We're going to keep, keep playing back. it, even though we think really we shouldn't be. It's had its time. Move on. I'd have two nominations for this, oh. but I'm not, I'm not sure which which would take precedent. And they are fifth fifth edition D and D, yeah, and Call of Cthulhu. Um, uh, the, you're suggesting that these games are on the last legs, are you? For you personally, we're not saying that. For me personally, yeah, but me personally, I'm not sure. You're not saying they're on the last legs. I don't. I'm not su- suggesting them being a gatekeeper thing and saying, "Oh, don't play fifth edition D and D. Don't play D and D. Play this instead." I'm not saying that. It's just for us, isn't it? Play over lockdown. Um, a friend of mine, his young son has got into role playing, and he's kind of thirteen, and he's got into, of course, fifth edition D and D. So I've I've played and run a bit of 5th edition D&D online for them. And there's a little bit of me that thinks, can we play something else? And I have, I've played the odd other different thing with them. I played a bit of Deadlands, actually, which I quite enjoyed. But, I like to yeah. I like to term this as your charity work. You're on a mission. So my there, charity it? work, yeah, yeah, yeah. But my friend bought his son Call of Cthulhu for Christmas and said to me, I'm counting on you to run this and get him interested in it. <laughs> so, right, okay, so more Cthulhu. And and I'm I'm right in saying that you've not necessarily I don't think you, I don't think I've ever I played in one game that you've run of uh, called Cthulhu. I played in Cthulhu Dark because you ran that this year, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I run Cthulhu Dark. Cthulhu Dark was a, was a highlight actually of of my gaming year, which I've, I've not mentioned strangely, but um, I ran Cthulhu Dark at Owlbear, and that was a bit like your aftermath game. Um, it was one of those games that I. I got very excited about the idea of it. It was a scenario by Graham Warmsley, Graham Wormsley, who wrote the 
the uh, the game Cthulhu Dark, um, and then got really worried about it because I thought I'm not sure what I've got myself into here because Cthulhu Dark's a very very lightweight system, isn't it? That runs just operates rolling three. 3d6 really it just operates on you know, you've got a d6 a human dice a sanity dice and a skill dice and that's it it's a very very lightweight system it's called cthulhu dark because really it's cthulhu light it's a light system light rule set but they thought that was inappropriate so they called it cthulhu dark it's a very very simple system um and the scenario was set in arkham in the sort of witch trials the, a bit like the Salem witch trials and I remember thinking, is this going to work? Is this really going to work? It's a kind of really rules-like system. And it's a historical setting, which I don't really do. It never really done much in the way of historical settings. And the, the scenario is very kind of open-ended and had lots of options in it because without giving too much away, the, the, some of the characters can kind of join the cultists if they wanted to and turn, turn court on people. But it was a really, really good game. No, no, in, in largely due to the players buying into it. But it was a really, really enjoyable game. I really yeah. enjoyed it, and it's a great. It's a nice, really nice system. Not a system that would work for other things, but it does work really, really well for Cthulhu because it's so light, and you can just improvise a little bit on the spot. And can I just really uh, can game. I just make a, a recommendation? Then I think uh, you need to find what you liked about that. And lean into it for the Call of Cthulhu game that you uh, <laughs> lean into run. it, yeah. And I'm going to run, yeah, yeah. Over the, you're going over the side for that <laughs> again, <laughs> again. <laughs> lean into it, yeah. But yeah, I think the the two games, I suppose, it's probably fifth edition. To be honest, that's that's my actual nomination because, to be honest with you, uh, I was looking at see, I, I, until recently, I didn't have the seventh edition cthulhu rules i didn't have them because they're quite expensive but for christmas i bought myself them um and they are it is a nice rule book isn't it and it does it does kind of inspire you a little bit when you read it to think oh they've done a good job here of reinvent not reinventing it but reinvigorating it so i'm not i'm not really rolling my eyes about running cthulhu i think i'll kind of enjoy that uh, we, we, this is a good point to mention as well, that we brought our long campaign of Two-Headed Serpent to a conclusion. Yeah. And what I'd say about the uh, Call Cthulhu 7th Edition rules and the Pulp uh, Cthulhu uh, variant is that it's great at conclusions because the finale of that campaign was great. Uh, um, you know, yeah. First time for a while that I've, st- I've stood up to uh, deliver <laughs> online game yeah. and it was so exciting the twists and turns and the you know it, it, it that's what it, it that's what it's good at and that's where i think some of the lighter systems are not a great at the final confrontation the final element it doesn't give you quite enough to uh, play with uh, when you've got those kind of kind of games you kind of depending on the players to spin something rather than something exciting within the game Yes, yeah, yeah, the game, yeah, you're right, Pulp Cthulhu kind of generated its own excitement from the system itself, really, and from the dice rolls. So, yeah, you're not just relying on the players to narrate things. Things will, things will happen depending on how people roll and because the yeah. mechanics kind of drive it. Well, that was, a, yeah, I mean, this is the strange thing about this review, isn't it? 
we've played so much, you just kind of forget. Oh yeah, Pope Cthulhu, we finished that this year, didn't we? You know, two headed serpent. And that was yeah. that was a great game. It was just that it was earlier in the year and yeah, your tendency to focus on what you played later in the year, really. Yeah. So go on, what what would you nominate for the Ozzy Osborne Award? The Ozzy Osborne Award, adult and it's on its last legs, but somehow it keeps on going, is it's not a game necessarily, it's a Buddy scenario, uh, which is um, Vert, uh, the game that I did, the world <laughs> oh, yeah. turned upside down, uh, never mind the bus coughs, which I've uh, run at Alba 2019, and it went disastrously for all kinds of uh, reasons. I revived it again at uh, Grogme uh, 2019, but still, I didn't quite get to where I wanted to go. An itch I couldn't quite scratch. I knew mm. that there was something in this scenario that I couldn't quite get to, and I persevered with it, and I ran it again. And it actually worked really well online. And again, it, I think it comes down to uh, player buying, but it's also me understanding what was what was in this scenario that was actually interesting and uh, ignoring some of the superfluous things that um, I got carried away with writing. Sometimes when you're doing uh, scenarios, you can get hooked on an idea that doesn't really fit. And mm. I think it's just having the courage to uh, abandon it. That's what I ended up doing. And it became a much tighter, much tauter, much more exciting couple of hours so i'm nominating that the vert experience will i ever play vert again i don't know i love the setting i love the idea of it i quite like the cipher system as a way of dealing with it um, mm, and yeah, i feel like there's yeah. more in it but i'm not quite sure whether it does what it needs to do okay let's uh, just open the spirit envelope and it's um fifth edition which Terrible climb down for uh, the fifth edition because it was once known as the Sharon Osborne Award. It won that one. <laughs> it's won both. It's won the Sharon both. and the won both the Sharon and the Ozzy Osborne Award. <laughs> it's a strange. It's a strange game. It's, it is a strange game because when we first discovered fifth edition, we we we, we sang its praises. We we loved it, didn't we? But. We we played a lot of it. Just played yeah. a lot of it, haven't we? Yeah. Those two big, you know, we had, had a great time with it. I played played a lot of it, and it does have its limitations. It's good at what it. I think, as you said, it's good at what it does, but it has its limitations. And sometimes you just want something a bit different. Yeah, I think its limitations comes down to that um, closed system. Perhaps we'll talk about this a bit more fully in another occasion. But sometimes you just want to make stuff up on the hoof. You don't really want to have a a rule no. tying it down. To it's, it. con- it's like a contingent system of everything depends on something else. Everything depends on being within fifty feet, and it's a bonus action, and it lasts for this. And is it concentration or not concentration, and this kind of thing. And and when you when you look at particularly those kind of fantasy games, when you get involved in lighter systems, so for example, we played we played some Morkborg this year, which is a very light system that you know magic just works. There's some magic, it works, it does this, it does that. It it's much more fun than constantly looking at range duration concentration on a spell oh it's concentration so you can't cast this and that you need a short rest a long rest this that and the other and i think when you play lighter systems you think well the lighter system for a fantasy game the lighter system's not really detracting from it next up is a critical role on the encounter table our experience of playing convention so the convention of the year and a funny old year it's been isn't it 
mention the year. What you're, you're going to nominate grog meat? <laughs> grog meat ish. It's one, every, it's one every year since we've had these groggies. So one things that I would like to throw over the side of, of this year is that will they, won't they? experience of uh, conventions is it going to be face to face is he can already sense it it's going to happen in 2021 isn't it is it going to be an, is it going to be a real thing because there's so much uncertainty about the current uh, situation yeah. you like to imagine he said jinxing it all that later in the later next year things will be back to normal but there is that problem of the first half of next year first half of 2021 and, and up to summer yeah, will things will things be normal? It's an unfolding situation, isn't it, where things happen? Light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, no, new variant. Oh, dear. Oh, everything changes. I mean, I don't want to be a doomster nor a gloomster. It takes about two years for a pandemic to work its way uh, through. Yeah. Me, personally, I'm going to go with the uh, assumption that it's uh, it's another virtual year and mm. and it's a real challenge. Uh, creating virtual uh, conventions. We've run a virtual grog meet for the last uh, few years, and of course, grog meet-ish went online uh, this time. It brings its challenges. It does. There's nothing better than if you've organised an event, standing in the middle of the space, seeing everybody playing games in different worlds, and knowing that these all these people are together because you created the environment for for it to happen. It's very different that experience uh, online it's like people off in little micro parallel worlds and it, you don't have that sense of community that sense of togetherness you know that it's happening out there somewhere but yeah. it it feels like the the there's definitely something missing from that communal experience of everybody being in one space at one time and those chance conversations that you have, those little moments that accumulate that are, are somehow bigger than the whole. And when you bump into somebody and you just spend five minutes with them. You're absolutely right. Cause that's the thing, isn't it? We, we play, we play online a lot anyway. And then the conventions, the face to face stuff with conventions and, and, not even conventions, but even regular monthly meetups and things like that um, are the face-to-face experience generally, aren't they? We've had the experience, haven't we, where people will sign up to a virtual convention and then not sign up to just not show up, not sign up to games. Yeah. yeah. Particularly about Grogmeet, because you know when Grogmeet, people are coming to Grogmeet and they sign up to games, they've, they've booked hotels, they're travelling down, they've, they've made that commitment, whereas with a virtual convention that that commitment isn't really there only physical convention that i've been to this year was wintercon at the beginning of the year and that was yeah. part of newton reports um go play manchester and uh, that was good fun playing um gamma world there. but everything else has been online hasn't it yeah. But been good, been good. Glorantha Games was good, and Burrito Con was good. Owlbear was good. I mean, Owlbear has said it. The, the Cthulhu Dark game that I played, which was which was fantastic. So, still lots of good gaming experiences. But uh, I know what you mean. There's that yeah. that lack of having a drink afterwards, or having a curry, or meeting people face to face and chatting to people. Because again, on online gaming, it's very much okay. This game starts at 10 a.m. Right, everyone here. Right, let's get on with it. And then when it's over, it's over. So yeah. there's not much in the way of socialising, which is is a real shame. Okay, let's uh, see what wins in the spurious envelope. I'll just open it up. Okay, it goes to everyone who has 
organised a virtual convention this year at, at short notice and all the games masters who've run it. Prizes for everyone. Prize for everyone. Mm. I, that's, that's very fair because it, it, the thing is, it would be very easy to have not done them. And I think I, I had a few conversations with people who were organising conventions who said, well, I, I just not do it this year. But the problem is, if you don't, if you haven't done it this year, would that mean that when things get back to normal, it would have just fizzled out? Because it's still putting down a marker to say this thing still exists. Certainly, that's what we felt with Grogme, isn't it? That if you don't do something, it's like, bah, not bother next year. Okay, the final uh, award is the GrogPod listener's favourite. Um, so the GrogPod of uh, the year. And uh, this is this is it. The, the results are in. People have voted for this. Yeah, I suppose it gives us an indication that the, the stuff that people have enjoyed during the year. So in uh, joint second place is the Conan episode mm-hmm. and the Aftermath episode. Which is which is interesting those two because I think what people enjoyed in those was the groggle box element, and the mm-hmm. other thing that those um, uh, two have in common is that we were leathered when we recorded them. <laughs> That's the future then. Get leathered. <laughs> get drunk. So get what was it? Get drunk, and they're also quite nostalgic because they're old games and old movies. So nostalgia and beer—that's what people want. And the winner is. Five years of the Grognard Files. So that was the Thunder Phase. And, oh, uh, I see. Oh, I see. Jason Durrell uh, interview. So uh, thank you for that. Well, we might, we might have to do another Thunder Phase. But people, what people really want is nostalgia, us drunk, and us talking rubbish. Yeah. No problem. Carry on. Another year in the bag there. Yeah. Keep going for another year. Another 12 yeah. months. Another 12 months of this rubbish. <laughs> Okay, so um, finally, a chance for us to make our resolutions for uh, uh, 2021. You know, games that we're going to commit to already, I can see in our diaries, they, they're booking up. They are, they are. That's the funny thing, isn't it? Well, my resolution is I am not going to buy any more new games. I've said that last time. I'm cheating a bit, actually, because I back that many Kickstarters that the first half of next year, or first half of 2021, There'll be loads of new games arriving on Kickstarter. I'm not cheating there, but strictly speaking, I bought them in 2020. So I'm going to try and avoid to buy buying new games. I have a lot to run in 2021, and I, I don't want to buy new games. And like a typical uh, rules lawyer, you've already built in a uh, loophole clause for you. A to, loophole, uh, yeah, yeah. What, what what about games that you are going to run? What are you going to? Commit well, I'm going to run. run I'm, I'm going to run some Vason in the new year. Vason, is that how you pronounce it? Vason, Vason. Yeah. Uh, which I'm quite looking forward to because I, I think that's a, a nice, a really nice, uh, another free league uh, year zero engine game, which is really, I mean, we'll see when we play it, but it's quite atmospheric and I like the tone of it. Um, I like the fact that whilst it's got monsters in it, um, the monsters are sort of, I mean, it's so unusual. They're kind of drawn from Scandinavian myths, so they're probably not that unusual if you're Scandinavian, but uh, they seem unusual to us. And there's a lot of kind of subtlety in the monsters. They're not just, it's not just a case of, oh, here's a big monster, let's kill the monster. It, yeah. there's, there's more in it. A bit like Leoness with the fairy stuff and bargaining and all yeah. those kind of things that make 
I think, as you always say about a good game, it's got interesting monsters. It's got monsters that when you read about the monsters, and even though some of them are quite familiar, like a mermaid, it gives you lots of background, which you think, oh, that's interesting. You could do something with that and build a scenario out of that. It's very rich with rich with potential as a game, Yeah, I think. I think I'm looking forward to running it. You know, I'm still glowing, basking in the glory of my uh, tremendous award. Thank you very much for awarding it to me um, for the Megalomaniac Award. Yes. Uh, and I think with the Leoness game, you're right. You know, that's what was good about it is, you know, you were going bargaining with a fairy and a she. So you were. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you were bargaining with a, a goblin. A, a tiny goblin as well, and um, you know that it had to uh, get on a ladder to sit on a stool. But you were—it's five agents who were scared to death of this uh, thing because of uh, potential of curses, and uh, that's what excites yes. me about Vason as well—that the unknown. Mm. You know what? What powers do they have? And um, you know, you're not—you're not, not going to look in a monster manual and say, "All oh, right, yes, I need to uh, yeah. use this, that, and the other to uh, yeah. counteract." It's yeah, ability. and it's not, and it's it, yeah, exactly, and it's not necessarily a case of right. Well, I tell you what, we'll do. We'll, we'll go in to the cave uh, with a lot of guns and dynamite and shoot this thing, and that's yeah. the end of that. It, it's a bit more complicated than that and subtler than that. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to running that, and I'm also I've also got Aegon, which is that John John Harper game. Aegon, a Greek Greek myth, which is is an intriguing game, bit bit like uh, Blades in the Dark. That it's not it's not the same system, but it but it's you know got parallels with that which will be quite interesting to play i think so they're they're two games i've got lined up for uh lined up for the new year um i'm going to continue thematically with my post-apocalyptic games i started the year saying that i would play a different one every month which i have been doing and i've been uh, recording those i'm going to include my findings in the drug zine and that's going to be produced in 2021 feels like the apocalypse is continuing so we'll carry on with that the other uh the other kind of minor theme so we've got a major theme of the apocalypse but also we've been looking at uh, literary adaptations for games so uh, leoness and uh Conan. I think this year I'm going to have a look at some of the film and television tie-ins that are out there. Um, so I'm particularly interested because of The Mandalorian. I've got all my Star Wars vibe, so I'm going to be looking mm. at the West End Games version of uh, Star Wars as as well as continuing my um, journey through the wastelands of uh, post-apocalyptic futures. Well, that was an interesting thing about us, about the alien RPG that we played four or five sessions of. Um, it's interesting to play games that connect to films because I think the alien RPG, whilst people, you could say it's a bit limited in scope, I think what's interesting about it is that it does capture the films really, really well. When I was running that for, for you and, and Matthew and Chris and, and Mark, it did feel like this is like the movies. The system yeah. does... The tweaks they've made to that Year Zero engine makes you think, yeah, this this does feel as tense as one of the movies and the way the monsters operate, the way the aliens operate is quite cinematic and they do cinematic things when they attack you and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that, isn't it, to be interested to look at other games that try and capture movies and TV shows and see, do, do they really capture the essence of the movie or TV show or are they just 
giving you a framework based on it, but doesn't necessarily capture it. One of the things I'm going to pledge to do, and I don't, I don't want to go on about it because I don't want to rub your nose in it, and um, because this year I played in a game of Spire City Must Fall with Steve Ray, all on Rex's gaming Rex's and all his mob, and it was great. It's great. It's one of the, it's probably the best sessions that I've played in um, this year. Partly because of the um, system, because it is a good system and it's a good uh, setting and we'll have fun playing it. But also because the players were so bonkers. And uh, Steve embraced the chaos and managed the chaos really, really well. And for that reason, I'm going to hand in my uh, Megalomaniac uh, Award because that's what I can do. You know, I'm a, I see myself as a benevolent uh, dictator. <laughs> so I'm going to give him the Games Master Award for the, the, this year. I didn't want to raise that to, to, to rub your nose in it. And I want to give an honorary award as well, a special award. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send something on behalf of us all. I don't know what it is yet. I'm going to send something about, about, oh, to Paul Michener because um, Paul uh, set up a virtual pub for gamers online yes. every Friday, yeah. meeting at nine o'clock. Uh, and it created space on tables, and he kindly let us use the uh, the virtual tables for the, mm-hmm. the the pub quiz this year. But it, you know, in these times of um, strangeness, it was great for somebody to have the initiative to uh, do that. And I know that that has built up a a great community of people who are meeting. It's a bit strange at first um, to join those tables and speak virtually, but it, it, it has created a, a community. But so, so to my mind, he has, he deserves recognition like uh, Joe Wick and that old fellow who walks around in a circle. Major Tom, was it? I don't know. So I don't know what it is yet, but I'll make sure that um, we send something to Paul on behalf of us all at the uh, yes, Grog Squad. Correct. So uh, 2021, here, here, I'm looking for another great gaming year. I want to say thanks to you as well, Blythe, because it's been a tough year. It's been tough doing this this year, hasn't it? Because normally, I mean, for, for 30 odd years or so, we've met every month this year. I'm not seeing you since March. So it's been strange um, doing this, but somehow we've yeah. managed to keep it going. Yeah. yeah. But then again, like I said, I think over lockdown, you get, you've got to keep doing things you do. Keep doing things you do. Otherwise, you might stop doing them. Well, thank you very much. Of course, there'll be people shouting at their pod box. LSD was like my star daily. Well, I wasn't going to make it too easy for him. Those that are interested in the fanzine scene should turn to the second issue of the Grogzine, available to patrons via the Grog Locker, to see the editor of LSD, Rob Knott. If you're on Twitter, you can follow my new daily project, at the RPG Librarian, where I pluck one item from the Great Library of RPGs every day for the whole of 2021. It was the result of insomnia over the holidays. I'm not even convinced that I have 365 items in my RPG library. Follow it as I get increasingly desperate at the end of the year. In addition, I've also launched an RPG book club that has its first meeting on the 6th of February. It'll meet at 9.30am GMT every month for a casual chat over at the Mitchester Arms. I'll put the details in the show notes. I sent some gaming tokens to Paul Michener for creating the virtual pub. He spent them on Cthulhu Inviticus. 
Thank you, Paul, for creating such a friendly corner of the internet. Thanks for all your support in 2020. We've got great plans for the new year, so thank you for your investment. It's appreciated. Next time in the room of role-playing rambling, we'll have games designer Chris Klug, who created the James Bond game that we covered in episode 15. We'll be speaking to him as we rediscover Dragon Quest. We've had Dungeons and Dragons, we've had Dragon Warriors, and these things come in threes. Until then, adios amigos. <laughs>